Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, Nature Nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. Uh, This is Megan. I'm sitting across, well, not really. I'm looking at you on a phone. Jen is off island this week. Hello. Hi, Jen. She'll be telling our story today. I will. (laughs) From afar. You're so little now. From afar. We're hoping this works. We're we're trying. We're trying a thing. (laughs) Jonathan will figure it out. We're testing uh, Jonathan's skills. Yeah. Yeah. He can do anything. It's amazing. So do you, uh, since we don't have any announcements that either of us know about, I'm going to go straight into a little science news. Would you like to hear some science news, Jen? 100%. I would love to hear some science news from Guam. Excellent. From far away. From Guam. Uh, so this time I searched uh, the term weird science and I like got song. an article on <laughs> like the song, like the movie. Mm-hmm. Weird science. I found this thing on ScienceDaily.com. It is called, Are People Swapping Their Cats and Goldfish for Praying Mantises? Obviously, that should say chickens there. They should include chickens. Not fish. I will never never swap my uh, chickens (laughs) for a praying mantis or probably anything else. I I mean, I'm not saying I don't like praying mantis because I do. I mean, they're beautiful creatures. Your chickens love them, probably. Oh, that this, they probably eat them up. They would eat them 100. Yeah, totally. They crunchy would snacks. Love crunchy it. snacks. So the this uh, comes from some research that was published in the Journal of Orthoptera Research this year in May, uh, entitled "The Pet Mantis Market: A First Overview on the Praying Mantis International Trade." So basically, there are all different kinds of praying mantises. How about I didn't know that there were like super elaborately colored praying mantis i was just like oh they probably come in like browns and greens right but there's like beautiful praying mantises it's crazy hmm. things you don't know yes anyway. i don't know those things so yeah <laughs> i guess people are going out and they're buying them at pet fairs and pet markets which just sounds awful on some level i mean hopefully they're like fair trade or not horrible places like puppy mills or something like that <laughs> but let me just read a little bit from the article <laughs> Praying mantis mills, mills, just like so many. (laughs) There's just like heads of the males on the floor of the mating, the mating cage. Just like it's just it's just a so many egg casings. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in this article, they say when choosing a pet insect, customers consider things such as shape, size, colors, and behaviors. They might also take into account how rare a certain species is or how easy it is to look after. The, looking at these preferences, Roberto Battison of Museo di Archeologica e Science Naturale. Uh, it's in Italy. I don't know how I just said that. but How anyway, can you not uh, say and, that is what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I need to get on that, uh, that language app again, Duolingo, and start mm-hmm. back with my mm-hmm. Italiano. Um, but yeah, this guy, Roberto and William Di Petrio of the World Biodiversity Association in Italy and an entomologist from the USA, Chris Anderson. See, I can say that name, uh, published the first overview of the mantis pet market 
Understanding how this market, still mostly unregulated, is changing may be crucial to the conservation of rare species and promoting awareness of their habitat and place in the ecosystem. So they did this survey um, among 200 hobbyists, enthusiasts, and professional sellers who, I guess, sell in this mantis community. Who even knew there was a mantis community? There's 28 different countries that they surveyed. And the typical mantis breeder or enthusiast, again, I just can't imagine someone just has like a little and they're just breeding. I mean, how do you is this like a panda situation? Are there like mantis sex tapes out there that they're just showing or are they just into it? <laughs> do they have to be motivated? Because they're really slow, you know, unless you they know, get spooked. But it just there's still. all kinds. There's just all kinds of people <laughs> with all kinds of all kinds interests. So I'm not surprised. True. At true, all. true, true. I mean, you know, no judgment, yeah. no judgment. Yeah. As long as they're none, doing it ethically, yeah. you know. That's right. Um, All right. So it says the typical mantis breeder or enthusiast, the study found, is 19 to 30 years old and buys mantises mostly out of personal curiosity or scientific interest. Willing to spend over $30 for a single individual, most people will prefer beautiful looking species over rare ones. So I think that's kind of good. I mean, like, I definitely wouldn't want to have a situation where there's just like just a bunch of rare species getting like collected and maybe that's causing a decline out in the natural world. Like it's good that they're, I mean, I guess looking for other species and maybe the more rare ones aren't as beautiful. I don't know. The research, when it was published, they identified buyers as, quote, mostly curious enthusiasts with poor knowledge of the market dynamics and the laws behind it, even if they seem to generally care about their pets. So basically, these are not like financial wizards. They're just people who like mantises. Okay, that's kind of rude, but yeah. I can like, (laughs) it is a little bit, but like, also, I kind of um, identify with that, you know, I don't know a lot about finances, but yeah. There's some animals I like, cats, what? Uh, But the data also suggests that the trade might not always be on the legal side. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. About one time out of four, the lack of permits or transparency from the seller is perceived by from the buyer. That's not good. Um, A good collaboration between science and this large community may play a crucial role in the conservation of mantises in nature, uh, the researchers point out. And uh, I mean, in general, mantises are pretty poorly known in terms of their biology, how far they're distributed, where they are, what kind of threats they encounter. I would assume chickens are one of those threats. Um, Yeah. And there are a lot of species who are uh, unknown and waiting to be discovered. There is a big limit to their protection and conservation since you can't protect what you don't know about. That makes a lot of sense. Like there there needs to be more studies on them to figure even how many how many there are out there in the wild. I feel like anytime you bring any kind of animal into the pet trade or any kind of trade or business, you're just, it's yeah. about, it's not going to be a good outcome. Situation. Yeah. They say hobbyists and pet insect enthusiasts are producing and sharing a huge quantity of observations on the biology and ecology of hundreds of species, even rare or still undescribed ones, a priceless heritage for the scientific community. I think that's the shining light out of this whole thing. It's like, yeah, people are really into them. Mm -hmm. They're learning more and they're sharing information. That's really great. I thought that was a nice little. Why can't they just go out and be like an entomologist and just. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before. There's. So many people, they are uh, the field of entomology needs more entomologists. So, yes, we need don't more. just be a collector, like learn we, some stuff. Yes, we need more bug scientists study all the all bugs. Those people who are into bugs. Yes, exactly. 
Um, So they say strengthening the dialogue between them, promoting a white market over a black one may be a crucial help for the conservation of these insects, fundamental parts of the biodiversity of our planet that are replacing our traditional pets at home. So Mm. that's it. I don't see that happening. That's my science news for today. I don't think think they're going to replace our pets at home. Not many people would be into cuddling. I mean, some people (laughs) would be into cuddling. But yeah, I mean, I just think about the quantity of mantis that I would have to own to replace all of the cats. I mean, that's just like whatever the largest mantis is and then times 100 or something. Yeah, just in weight And they'd have to be cool with just chilling out. Yeah. They are cool with chilling out. It'd just be creepy as hell. Anyway. Like you finally get that date and they come over and there's just like crazy weird (laughs) praying mantis all over. Hundreds. Hundreds. Just everywhere. Stuck to you. And they're like, head. and I'm like, but wait, I'm not a cat woman. So that's good, right? So like, cool. Cool, cool. would it be better? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the way to just be like, but ha, ah, just kidding. Actually, I have five cats. <laughs> <laughs> this praying mantis you thing know, was just a like big a bit joke. Of a fake out. It's silly. We just put them outside. <laughs> oh, April Fools. Well, um, so Jen, I am uh, stoked to hear about your story today. Yeah, I have a pretty good one. I have to say, I'm sure there are some people out there who have heard about this, but I hope you learned something new mm-hmm. today because I'm going to talk about Michael Rockefeller. Is it bringing any thoughts? Anything? I mean, just yeah, Rockefellers. I mean, I mean there's so many. There's like Oysters Rockefeller, and then there's like people with a lot of money. There's this <laughs> is are the the people with a lot of money, Rockefellers. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about Michael Rockefeller today. He was um, born in 1938, um, and he's the youngest son of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. He was a governor and he was a vice president. So I'll talk about that in a second. Oh, He was the great grandson of the John D. Rockefeller, who was notably one of the richest people who has ever lived. I guess if you like take money back then and like say what it would be today. So I was trying to figure that out. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Adjusting for inflation. He was like super duper rich. Yes, exactly. So I'm going to go back and just talk about I'm going to give a little family history here just to kind of bring it up to Michael Rockefeller. So John D. Rockefeller, who was the original, the the OG. Mm -hmm. The OG. Yeah. He's the real (laughs) Slim Shady. So he... John D. Rockefeller, the original guy, was born in 1839, and he ended up establishing the Standard Oil Company in 1870, and that's how he made all of his money. But I don't think a lot of people know that he actually dropped out of high school. He was a high school dropout. He went to Cleveland. What? They're from Ohio. Well, I, I think they originally that. were from New York, and then they moved to Ohio. He went to Cleveland's Central High School, dropped out. It doesn't say what grade, so I don't know. Hmm. Let's just say... Just eighth grade, back when eighth grade was high school. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just say it's like ninth, tenth grade. I don't know. Who knows? And he started his first job as an assistant bookkeeper. He was making 50 cents per day. You know, it's probably not bad back then. Um, And so he saved that money. And then he got a loan from his, they say, entrepreneurial snake oil salesman of a father. I'll add a little more to that. And he started his first oh. business, which is okay. uh, commodities brokerage. And he started that in 1859. So a little about his dad. His name was William Avery or 
Devil Bill Rockefeller Sr. Oh, what? <laughs> what? Already I like him. I know, right? He so, sounds awful. <laughs> he was known as a con artist and he went by the alias Dr. William Levingston, which, you know, anybody who has an alias, you know, something's up. Uh, yeah. Saying. Yeah. So well, then Lovingston, do you think that he like came up with that on his own? He was like, I need something that doesn't sound so like not good. So I'm going to go Lovingston. Le- Lovingston sounds good. I mean, it's a little better than yeah. Devil Bill. But anyway, well, OK, we'll get yeah. there. But so he worked as a lumberman and then he was a traveling salesman who identified himself as a botanic physician. So see where I'm going with this? Last week's, oh, or oh. not last week's, but the week before his episode with the botanic physician. Yeah. And he sold elixirs. Oh, yeah. So that's why they called him a snake oil. Snake salesman. oil. Yeah. So that's really all I'm going to say about his dad. I mean, there's it comes up a little bit more. His dad kind of, he was a bit scandalous. And I think later oh. in John D. Rockefeller's life, issues with his dad came up. But whatever, right. he was able to kind of cover it up. But in 1870, Rockefeller joined the oil business along with his brother, William, and then some other guys. They put their names, but I actually wrote in my notes some other guys. Um, Their business, because it won't matter. (laughs) You won't remember. Just these other dudes. This is some other guys. I don't know. They probably got rich, too. So the Standard Oil Company of Ohio. So it focused more on oil refining, which had less variable costs than Um, oil exploration or drilling. So most companies were into like finding oil and drilling for it, but they invested or he invested in research and development. So he brought in like in-house labor so they could focus on finding markets for refining byproducts or refinery byproducts. And so he knowingly bought these fields in Ohio that had bad oil. And he took this team of research and development guys, people, probably guys, because it's back then, and yeah. um, he had yeah, them f- definitely find ways to remove oil impurities, which they did. I and mean, then, and then he just that's got a smart, s- super plan. rich. I know. I thought that was so interesting. So, I mean, this really yeah. doesn't have anything to do with my story. It's just history is cool. And then, well, before <laughs> this, in 1864, he married um, a lady named Laura Celestia, or they called her Seti Spellman. Is that ringing a bell to you? Was she a witch? Atlanta, Georgia? No. Just Spelman College. Oh, Spelman College. Uh Uh-huh. No way. And so they raised, um, let's see, I think they had one, two, three, four, five kids. But one of the, so they had four girls. Well, they had five girls, but one died when she was just a baby. So four that lived and then John Jr. So they had one son. Hmm. And they were, um, she was a school teacher and she was, um, an abolitionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah an abolitionist. Be- okay, I was going to say, because Spelman College is a historically black university in HBCU. HCU. For girls. Oh, shit. I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, they're uh, I mean, it's. I think it's co-ed now, Spelman. Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to think of the, the other school that was like for boys in uh, Atlanta. Why can't I think of it? Well, anyway, moving on. So anyway, so her, her dad, this guy, Harvey Spelman, he was an abolitionist also. So he was active in this congregationalist church. And he was also also really um, involved in the Underground Railroad back in the day and in politics. So that kind of, you know, oh, wow. influenced her. And then she just happened to marry a guy who got super rich. So they were able to invest a lot into this school. So it was really these two ladies that started the school, but then they went to the Rockefellers and then she was like, heck yeah, I'm going to give you guys some money. 
So yeah, that school, historically um, Black Women's Liberal Arts College in Atlanta. Very but yeah, cool. maybe now it's yeah. co-ed. So they only had one son, John Jr., and he was born rich. His dad had a lot of money. And so as he got yeah. older, he was involved in the development of the Rockefeller Center, which we've all heard of, making him one of the largest real estate holders yes. in the city. Um, and he also was like big into, I mean, because these people with like billions of dollars really get into, you know, yes. they're big philanthropists, right? So they don't, he well, donated. Well, yeah, because they don't have to worry about food. Right. And they have to give money away because taxes, they got to write it off. Right, right. So he actually, over time, he donated over $500 million to a bunch of different causes, like all over the place. Um, and Dang. he actually, one of his was, he was really into conservation. And he also supported uh, women's like health and birth control, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, so this Jeez, who guy, are these people? I know. This so is amazing. So he was actually, he had six kids. And his kids, so remember, he's the son of the main guy. So these would be the grandkids to John yeah. D. Rockefeller. And those kids were Abby, John III, Nelson, Lawrence, Winthrop, and David. So the old man, John D. Rockefeller, he died when he was 97 in 1937. Yeah. And he was in Florida for whatever reason, probably because he was old. And he's like, I want to go in Florida. Well, Let Florida. Yeah. yeah. Put me on the beach. And so... Just One FYI, of, what? Uh, sorry, it, just an aside. Um, my dad was born in 1936. Oh, interesting. Well, so crazy. One of these sons, which would have been a grandson, Nelson Rockefeller. Okay, so he was the son of the only son of John D. So Nelson Rockefeller, he was born in 1908, and he was also sometimes referred to as Rocky, <laughs> and he was an American businessman <laughs> and politician. So. He was actually under President Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. He was the first assistant secretary of state for the American Republic Affairs. And that was in 44 to 45. He was the first oh. undersecretary of health, education, and welfare under President Eisenhower from 1953 to 54. And then he was part of the secret, I think he had something to do with the um, Secret Service or something for a long time. And then from 1959 to 1973, for a long time, he was the 49th governor of New York. And he also supported mother's, uh, women's health, like, or he said, it says mother's health. And he was um, supported pro-choice and was trying to get rid of like abortion bans. Um, he was noted oh, wow. to have said, I do not believe it right for one group to impose its vision of morality on an entire society. I that was worth bringing Jeez. up right now. I mean, then, that's a right on the uh, nail, right uh, hitting the nail right on the head. I can't even remember. I know. <laughs> I already say was that. Back you know in what the I mean. You know Sixties. I mean. So just saying, um, he was also the forty-first vice president of the United States with Gerald Ford from nineteen seventy-four to seventy-nine. So hmm. he married this lady, and this was kind of going back in uh, nineteen thirty. He married Mary Todd Hunter Clark, and they had. Sounds like she probably came from some money too with a name like that i'm just saying you know. yeah it's a lot of names it's a lot of names so they had five kids all the guys their middle name is clark i don't know why <laughs> but rodman clark and then they had oh. Anne. then they had stephen clark and then they had twins michael clark and mary so there's michael clark so rockefeller who we're going to talk about today okay and but clark is like her maiden name right clark 
Yeah. Something, something, something Clark. I guess you said the name and then, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's but he put it as they're all the kids' middle names, but at least the boys. I don't know. So it must be something with I mean, I guess that makes side. it, right? Maybe it just makes it easier. You don't have to yeah, think maybe. about the middle name. So you're just like, let's go whatever. It's Clark. <clears throat> we're Clark. We're all Clark. So, okay. The Clark bars. So now <laughs> like we're to candy. Michael <laughs> Rockefeller. Just right. also a little side note. So Nelson, the dad of Michael and his mom, Mary, they divorced in 1962. And then 1963, he married a lady named Margareta Large, which I guess was her last name, Happy. And this is like air quotes, Happy Filters. So people called her Happy. And I looked up pictures of her and she really has like a very delightful face and look. She's very face? pretty and she looks She's, like somebody she you would like. She looks happy? Yeah. I was like, I she know. seems like That's a really good. I guess it's nice good. lady. Yeah, I guess it's good. She's not like, uh, it's like a scowl. There's, but imagine if like your stepmom was named Happy. I would hope she would be nice. That wouldn't be cool. She, I mean, she better be cool. I feel cool. like she would have to be because, mm. yeah. Anyway, so they had two more sons together, Nelson Jr. and Mark Rockefeller. No Clarks. No Clarks in there. Cool. Yeah. No Clarks. Well, of course not. So Michael's dad, so Nelson Rockefeller, he was also a collector of a lot of modern and non-Western art. And during well, the time he was a governor... Um, in New York State, he acquired a bunch of art for the Empire State Plaza in Albany. And so this was something that I think was in their family that they opened the Museum of Modern Art or funded that somehow. So their oh, wow. whole family was in. I mean, they're just rich, right? So they were into art yeah. and collecting art. And so he had expected, you know, he was like, okay, sons, Michael, you're going to be doing what I do. You're going to follow in my footsteps. You're going to get into politics. You're, you know, you're going to law school. You're going to run the family business because you're a gazillionaire and you're going to do all these things, right? And be a philanthropist and stuff. But Michael, he was like, he, you know, he's the youngest and he was also, you know, a twin, but he was like, he was kind of quiet and he was more artistic. And so he actually did graduate from Harvard in 1960, but he wanted to do something more exciting and sit around and like go to meetings. He was like not into it. He wanted to go to clown school. He wanted to join the Peace Corps. Wouldn't that have been cool? (laughs) There there was no Peace Corps yet. But anyway, (laughs) so since his dad was like this big art collector, he's like, listen, maybe I can go like do something like this. Um, And his dad actually had opened a museum of primitive art, which I don't, I think they probably changed that name. I don't think they call it that anymore, but it had like all these kind of like Mayan yeah. and Aztecan works. And so, and he was really into right, it. Right, right. Anyway, he decided he was going to like look for something. He was really interested, more interested in that. So he kind of started going in that direction. And so he actually met this guy named Carl Heider, I think. And he was a graduate student of anthropology at Harvard. And he was like, what are you doing? can I do something with you? Anthropologist Mm. friend. And so actually later, this guy, I guess, said, Michael said he wanted to do something that hadn't been done before and to bring a major collection to New York. So I think he was like, are you going somewhere cool? Because I'm just going to go with you and get some art and bring it back. Just tag along? And just tag along. That's pretty cool. So back up just a little bit. He also, before this, he went to the Buckley School in New York, which somebody would know what that means, but we don't because we're not from New York. But he also graduated. It's probably fancy. Yeah, totally. He also graduated from the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Um, He was a student senator and I guess a really good varsity wrestler. And he graduated Mm. 
cum laude from Harvard with a A B in history and economics. Is that a B A? Oh, right. Okay. We've talked about this before. But, yeah, we've talked about this before. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. It's like the way they used to say it. Yeah. It's like how they say that hard. It's the old timey closer to Latin or something way they say yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, actually yeah, yeah. in 1960, he served for six months as a private in the U.S. Army. And then um, they went on this expedition for Harvard's Peabody Museum for Archaeology and Ethnology to study this Danny tribe um, of Western Netherlands, New Guinea. So back then it was the Netherlands, New Guinea, right? So that's a whole thing. So he had already traveled a little bit because he's a Rockefeller. Like he stayed in Japan and Venezuela for a few months at a time. But, you know, that wasn't really doing it. He wanted to go somewhere super remote. See what I mean? He wanted to be You know what? Maybe he he probably he probably never went to a cat island when he was in Japan. And so he didn't appreciate all that there is to be offered from. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess (laughs) they talked to some representatives with the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology. And um, he decided to make this scouting trip to what was, yeah, what was then known as the Dutch New Guinea. And so he wanted to go collect some art from the people there that, you know, he had heard about. There's a quote of him saying that his motivation to go there was driven by his need for adventure. And this is a quote from him. I wanted to do something romantic and adventurous in a time and place which is about to disappear. So this Harvard expedition that I mentioned that he was going to go on was to go into the uh, wilderness of the highlands of the Dutch New Guinea to film the life of cannibals on the brink of extinction. Now all of a sudden you know where I'm going with this story. (laughs) It's like when you mentioned New Guinea, I was like, is she gonna, I don't, I mean, it was like a flit of a thought, but I was like, she's happening. going someplace else with this. Oh my God. Yes. Oh no. So he was, Michael was 23 and he was like, let's do this. So he went on this expedition. It says he grew a beard, which I'm like, okay. And he. Of, uh, that's uh, so many Peace Corps tropes right here. Growing the beard. Growing <laughs> Trying the beard. to go I'm someplace sh- isolated. He ha- <laughs> Did he have a guitar? I, he had to have, right? <laughs> so he Hopefully he washed his underwear. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Let's hope. I don't know. So he went on it. So he, he was very like excited. Everybody that talked about him was like, he came from this really rich background, but he was super low key and really nice and really willing to do whatever it took to kind of like blend in and help out in any way he could, which, you know, people really mm-hmm. appreciated that. So for this, he yeah. he actually got um, the job as the sound technician and the still photographer for this expedition where they were filming a color film. It was a 84 minute long documentary called Dead Birds. And it was produced by this guy, Robert Gardner. And um, it was supposed to be about the people there, like, and their life. So check it out. But it's I called didn't dead, watch it. Dead Birds. Did I hear you correctly? Dead yeah. Birds. Dead Birds. What? Mm-hmm. All right. So at this point in the 1960s, the Dutch colonial authorities and missionaries had already been on the island for about 10 years. Um, but a lot of the people there, especially these people called the Asmat people, had never seen a white person ever. They had no contact with the outside world. And they really, these people thought that, you know, land beyond their island was inhabited by spirits. And so when they finally did see white people come, they thought they, thought they were like ghosts, basically, or supernatural. 
Yeah. Not of this earth. Which I feel like, I feel like that's that's happened to me sometimes when little tiny kids or babies would see me and start screaming because I was Did, like the I first like white person about, they'd ever seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like we had talked about this on a previous episode, how my host family had a family member who just had a baby. And then when she was old enough, they brought her down and they would tell her I was a ghost and she would scream like it was so traumatizing for her. And I was like, you just have to kind of sit there and like laugh. Everyone was laughing. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. and you're like, but it's, <laughs> and you were traumatized child. too. And I'm like, I just got to go to the bathroom by going to my room and just scream into my pillow and like cry a bunch. <laughs> yeah. It was great. I remember b- before I left the house, like for the final time, like the, she was there and, but she was like, she came over and touched me and it was like a big deal because she didn't think I was a ghost anymore. That was like, was it how long? Four years almost? Three, three and a half? Poor kid. Whatever. That's so sad. For Peace Corps? Yeah. Messed up. So imagine like this place, like nobody had ever seen it. So for this guy, for Michael Rockefeller and the group that he was with, these documentarians, you know, they were a big curiosity for the people and not very welcome, I think, for a lot of them. Yeah. They say that the that the locals or, you know, the indigenous folks there, they put up with the photography but they didn't like these white researchers to try to buy these artifacts that they made because they had really beautiful, like they carved really nice, these like wooden pillars and they used them as part of their rituals and like religious, you know, stuff. So they're like, no, you cannot buy this. This is ours. Right. But he was like, there's got to be a way to get some of this stuff. He decided, you know, like, I'm going to keep trying this and he wanted to keep pushing because in his mind, it was more important to bring these artifacts back to the Western society because he thought Mm. it was just so unique and all this stuff. So at that time, there was also a war happening between villages, which wasn't uncommon, but he had learned that these Asmat warriors, he found this out while he was there. It was part of their culture to take the heads of their enemies and eat the flesh of their enemies. And in certain regions, these warriors would also engage in like ritual, like sex acts, you know, with same sex or other partners. They had um, multiple wives, they had bonding rites, and they would also drink each other's urine. So everything that seemed like so way out there for us, but but in their culture, completely everything makes sense. 100%. They were like, this is a Tuesday. Exactly. So he said, he wrote in his diary, now this is wild and somehow more remote country than I have ever seen before. It is. I feel like headhunting and cannibalism, like if it's part of their culture, I respect that. But I would respect that yeah. from a far distance. I'm just saying. Yes, that that's probably about the time that you just like turn on your heel and other direction and be like, like, thank you so much for letting me be here. I will not take anything from you. I don't want to make anybody angry. I respect you. Please continue (laughs) with your life and your ways. And I Mm -hmm. will move on back to my home. Goodbye. Yeah. So after this initial like time he was there, he was like, that was so amazing. These people. And I mean, the people were really nice, you know, they were, nice to them for the most part. A lot of people were really friendly and, you know, but there was, you know how it is. I mean, you go to other people can be like on their, on the outside, it can be all like, okay, but there's like also this other thing underneath. Right. 
confusion yeah, or mistrust yeah. or what's the real motive here? Like what's going on? Because complete opposite cultures, right? Right. Well, yeah, because Americans will just tell you what right. they think and feel whether or not they have anything to back it up. <laughs> They'll just be like, yep. Bah, yeah. Bah, bah, bah. yeah. So after this first trip, like I said, he was he was like really excited about it. So he wrote out these plans and he was like detailing how he's going to really study these people because he wanted to get their artifacts and display it at his father's museum. And he wanted to have this full write up and he was going to be the one who was going to like write everything up. Right. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that particular expedition with the documentary, it ended in September 1961. And so he went back home. And when he went back home, that's when he realized that his parents, after 31 years of marriage, were on the verge of a divorce. And he was like, oh, no. All right. He's like, well, peace out. I'm going to (laughs) go. This is a good time for me to head back and do this (laughs) stuff since you guys are doing that. So he went back to New Guinea for another three-month expedition along the South Coast. And then this one, he was going to collect shields, um, painted and preserved human heads, and also these, they call them biz poles. It's this um, ancestor sculptures that are like 20 feet high. And he was going to take all this back for his dad's museum in New York. Are they like as big as the Easter Island heads? Or well, those are like huge, though. I don't know what the poles were. So it seems like most like a totem kind of situation, but preserved human heads. Oh, okay. He was going to get some actual preserved human heads. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Yeah. I'm like, what? Mm. So he went back in the district office. We're like, you have to have a guide and it's going to be this guy who is an anthropologist. He was 34 years old, Rene Wassing. Wasing. And he was he had been working in New Guinea. He spoke the language and they're like, he's going to go with you. You need to have this guy. So he's still not a local guide. No, it's just like a he's Dutch. another researcher. OK, yeah. Man, so, I would have been like, get me someone local. He who actually wants to be had, with they me. did have two local guides with them. But oh, this good, one good, was, good, good. I don't know at what point they picked up those guys, but this time he took a bunch of stuff with him. He's, he had tobacco, clothing, knives, machetes, like really nice stuff that he could trade people. You know, like, <laughs> I'll give you these machetes if you give me some of your heads <laughs> or whatever. So I don't that know. Was, okay. This is, I don't know if this is like, I, this is my initial thought. Is that like he wants to go get preserved heads? And in my mind, if you're eating the flesh off of the head of a person mm-hmm. to like gain something from it, whatever, it's like magical, maybe a little. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That like you probably don't want to give that head up. Like, I don't know. I don't think that that would be the thing that'd be like, you know what? Let me go try and get some of these heads. I know. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. it and I like couldn't, a... you guys, I just couldn't go so far down the road of this culture there's a whole book about it and there's so much about it that you can read i'm just skimming the surface it's too deep and too far it's like for us to have a weekly story (laughs) i can't i can't i can't delve i feel like that is the theme that's like the theme of our podcast though is like well um, here's this like tidbit of a story Mm-hmm. And there's like a million other rabbit holes you could go into from these stories. Oh, like, feel free totally. to do that. Yes. But we can only talk for a certain amount of time before you guys want to turn it off. <laughs> exactly. So he brought all these things with him because obviously money was of no value to the people in this area. 
what his plan was was not very, um, I guess, popular with the Dutch officials. They were like, I don't know about this. This doesn't seem like a good idea. One of them actually said that Rockefeller's <laughs> presence is leading to a huge increase in local trade, especially the demand for beautifully painted preserved heads has gone up. As few uh, as few weeks ago, one of the district officers was approached to give permission for a night of head hunting. And the guy was like, please, sir, what? just one night. And so because Michael, I guess, was offering up to 10 machetes per preserved head. And he said, we had to refuse oh, no. the request as it creates a demand which cannot be met without bloodshed. Oh, God. Yeah. It's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. I know it's no pun intended. kind of a pun, but I'm just saying <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> But that's the thing is, I think he would have not, you know, he was young. He was just like, I'm just going to do this thing. And but didn't think that out far enough, I think. Right. Right. Oh, my God. So him and his companion, the anthropologist that went with him, Renee, they were traveling along the south coast from one village to the next. And like I said, they had two um, local guides with them. And so they traded shells and hatches. They got like. They said they got more than 50 indigenous pieces of art. And in some of the village, they were guests at like these mission stations where Michael showed his, he had bought Mm -hmm. this catamaran. So it was kind of like this thing that he bought, it had, it was like two canoes that were attached with planks and he had a little tiny 18 horsepower outboard motor on it. And so there was, I guess as they went to like different, um, villages there were like resident priests because of course the you know they were the priests were getting they were doing right. their yes they're doing their thing always go ahead you got it you know what you got to save the savages jen you got to save the i'm savages. waiting i'm waiting for it megan <laughs> i don't want to do it anymore oh because they were colonizers colonizers yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry cat i tried oh my god so apparently these missionaries, like all of them, and this is what, I mean, this is all after the fact. We're like, they're like, we we tried to tell him. We did. We, we warned him. But they apparently, they were warning him that his 40-foot catamaran was unsafe because there was like changing tides in this, what they called Flamingo Bay, and it can cause 20-meter high waves further along the coast. And they oh. were like, hey, this oh, no. these rivers and these tides, it's no joke. Like they can be very turbulent and they can even as far up as 75 miles upstream, there are some even people from here that cannot row against the current that's created by this tidal fluctuation. So they're like, it's not safe. It's going to flip. But they're like, oh, no, it's fine. This thing is awesome. We got this. We're not, we're only going to be here for a couple of months and I'm sure it'll be fine. Oh no. I'm just pausing for effect. All of this just, all yes. of this sounds like a massive disaster. So on their final day of their journey together, so Michael and Renee and their two guides, they left for they left for this village called I don't even know how to say it. It's A T S J. That's the best I can wow. do. Wow. Yeah. It was twenty five miles yeah. upstream from the coast. Um and this was later recounted by Renee. So the catamaran started to flood instantly because there was like, of course, the tidal waves and there was like rolling seas. And they say that water, he said water poured in at such a rate that they were trying to get the water out. It was useless. And the outboard motor completely flooded. All their gear was floating. Mm. And so they tried to like hoist 
things into the hollow like bottoms of the two canoes. Um, the two guides mm. pieced out. They were like, uh, we're going to go to shore and we're going to try to get some help. <laughs> Bye. But Michael and Renee stayed behind on the, and it had already completely upturned and it was starting to float further away from the coast and it was getting dark out. And so they mm. were just holding on to it. Oh, They're no. just like on this upturned hull sitting there just floating further away from the coast. And so they were both good swimmers, but Renee was like, I'm not getting off this boat. There's like freaking crocodiles and sharks and all kinds of stuff. I'm not getting in the water. I'm just going to, I'm going to ride it out up here. But Michael was like, I, <laughs> I mean, Renee, yeah, right there. Absolutely. Stay with the boat. <laughs> I know. Right. But so Michael, on the other hand, was like, I don't know. Like, this isn't cool. We've just been like sitting here. We've been, I guess they were there for like a day and then a night. And then he was like, these guides are gone. Nobody's coming to help us. And I guess he was just kind of like a restless person. I mean, he's a young guy by nature. And yeah, so he yeah, was like, yeah. I can swim. And so he thought that they were maybe about five miles out from the coastline. He's like, I can do that swim. So he took off his pants. Well, he had like boxers on. Tied his glasses because he wore glasses. <laughs> tied his glasses around his neck. And he got this red jerry, they say jerry can, but like an empty water can. And he made it like a buoy. He tied it mm -hmm. around his waist. And he was like, the last words he said to Renee were, I think I can make it. But Renee was like, oh God. the tide's against you. And he was like, don't do it. And I mean, this is what he said. You know, he's like, don't do it. But Michael yeah, just yeah, like yeah. swam away. And so now Renee's like alone, floating on this like bottom of this upturned canoe. He waited and waited. And in the course of a day, there was like a little plane that flew overhead. And it says that torches and a small dinghy. So I'm guessing like flashlights <laughs> and a small dinghy right, right, were yeah. <laughs> thrown down to him. So he swam to it because he was afraid of sharks. So he swam like really fast <laughs> over to it. He got onto that dinghy <laughs> and they say he floated for hours. What? <laughs> He he did that like weird, super scared doggy paddle that everybody does like in um, scary shark movies. And he's they're like, like trying <laughs> really fast. <laughs> it's like really crazy. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess he floated oh, around and then the plane, like, I don't know if it was overnight, but this says the next day the plane came back and threw more torches and dropped um, off a mark <laughs> in the water. Torches? Why aren't they coming? They're like, flying they see him well i think they, they were trying figure to figure out where he is i don't think they could land they were trying to get a boat out to him i think they were just trying to drop markers okay. and figure out his location so they could radio back because yeah. then they say that a government okay. vessel from a nearby i don't know how to say it Maroc. i don't know but they um they found him and by that point he was 22 miles out from the coast it's pretty far so oh, he floated oh, all no. the way out there so they brought well, him in. Maybe that five miles, that five miles that that Michael thought, Michael, right? Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Thought was like not, it, maybe it was more than five miles mm -hmm. or it's been a couple days. And, well, I so think, he's kind of so floated. other okay, things okay, okay. that I read and heard said he was more like 12 miles out, but he thought he was about five miles when oh. he started swimming hmm. for the uh, Dutch authorities that were there. You know, they were like, okay, we got to find this guy. So they found Renee. Michael's missing. So they sent out planes and all this, you know, police units to try to find him. And they say there were 5,000 local residents that went through swamps and mangroves looking for him. So Australian and Dutch helicopters were scanning the coastline 
Even the U.S. had offered aircrafts, and this was a telegram from uh, President JFK, John F. Kennedy, that he was worried about it. And that's even before Rene had made it back. So then, of course, they let his dad know in New York, and also his, you know, his family knew. So his dad, Nelson Rockefeller, and his sister, his twin sister, Mary, flew out there. They like immediately went out as soon as oh. they heard that he was missing. And there were some journalists that went out. It's like a big deal because he's like a rich guy, right? Yeah. So they're like, oh my God. And he was the governor of New yeah, York yeah, at yeah, the yeah, time. Yeah. So they're like, Governor of New York's son is missing out in the middle of nowhere in this, you know, strange land. Right. <laughs> and so they went out and they <laughs> they did this week-long search and rescue. And his dad said, I'd never forgive myself if I didn't do all that is possible to help find my son. I mean, no, you know, expense was spared in this search. They did everything, could not find him. At one point, they Mm -hmm. found this, the can, the jerry can, and it was near the coast of, I'm not sure how to say this either, but I think it's like Osnajep, but I'm not sure. But that was the area where they found this can. And when they found it, Rene was there. So he was like, that's the one he tied to him. So it has to be that he's he's around here. So, Renee's like, uh, that's the one that I threw into the water to make you guys think that he swam away. But actually, <laughs> I killed him. <laughs> Just throwing out a theory. That's all. But they found it like 120 miles out from the coast. But it was out from that area. Jeez. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. after 10 days, they basically stopped the search. They couldn't do anything else. And they say that as the headhunting and cannibalism still operated in some parts of the region, there was speculation that he may have been murdered or, you know, taken by one of these tribes. But they also were like, what they thought, they were just like, probably he drowned. Or maybe he got attacked by a crocodile or a shark or whatever. But that's what they walked away thinking. He drowned. So officially it was he drowned. But, you know, they went back thinking there's a chance he might still appear. You never know. Maybe he's just lost somewhere. Maybe some tribe has him and he's just hasn't been found yet. Right. But after a few more weeks, the Dutch officials completely called it off and his cause of death was officially put as drowning. Jeez. It was a media sensation and there were a lot of rumors, as you can imagine. But the Dutch denied all the rumors of the headhunting and cannibalism. They're like, no, 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 no. That didn't happen. I'm sure this young man, this brave young man, he drowned. But they never found I mean, him. okay, let's say, yeah, let's say you're uh, in a tribe, kind of remote. You don't see, that would be kind of a special head, right? Yeah, we'll get there. Like this uh, white guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there. <laughs> but first, let's talk about the people, these Asmat people. So Asmat is a tribe that lives on these the small islands in the mangroves um, near, you know, on the western part of New Guinea Island. And they're most famous, the most famous cannibalistic tribe in Papua. So they're known to be, that's, that's their thing. That's their thing. That's, that's their, their thing. that's their niche. Yeah. Their specialty. It but it's super interesting. The local dish. It's like when you really read more or hear more about their culture, it's, it kind of seems almost it fits or it's normal when you think of what it means to them. Anyway, Asmat people occupy the low-lying swampy region, uh, covers approximately 
10,000 square miles or 25,000 square kilometers um, in the southwestern Aryan Jaya. You know I'm going to say all this wrong, but just bear with me. That sounds great. You're doing Thank great. You. You're doing I feel great. Like in my head, it sounds perfect. So their population <laughs> is estimated at about 65,000 people living in villages with populations of up to 2,000. So it's a lot. It's a pretty wow. big group of That's people. Big. Um, their languages uh, are from the Papuan language known as Asmat Camoro, which has over 50,000 speakers. That's a lot. Oh, so, that's a lot. They believe, the Asmat tribe believe that they arose out of wood. So therefore, that's why wood is very sacred for them. Um, in ancient times, oh. they carved these really beautiful things from wood. And they're considered to be the best wood carvers of the Stone Age. And many of their engraved carvings are in museums all over the world. And they're known for the quality of these wood sculptures. And they're also, of course, known for their traditional practices of head hunting and cannibalism. And so they didn't only hunt for skulls, but they also like worship them. So the skulls of the deceased were stripped of the brain, the eyes, nasal parts, and those were closed up in order to prevent evil spirits to enter or exit the body. And the skulls that were modified, they were also like decorated. And I put some pictures, you'll see them. So they were um, displayed by uh, the Asmat in a very honorable place in their homes. And even they would use some of their like ancestors or their family that had died. They would use their heads as pillows. I have a picture. Oh, I don't I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all right. I, I guess, guess it's one way you to grow stay up. Close. If you grow up with that. That's normal. Yeah. To yeah. Them. But if, mm-hmm. if you grow up in that culture, it's totally normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, I'm sure there are things that we do that are just like, what? Oh, yeah. I mean, like letting my cat sleep on the bed next to me. Probably that's disgusting, even for some people in uh, American culture. A little less extreme, but sure. I mean, I'm not calling it disgusting. I'm just saying it's different. Yeah, it's it's yeah, just different. different. It's different. But so besides being headhunters, they um, also hunted for names. So they believe that when they killed a man and ate him, that they would take his powers and become him. So every person oh. that um, every person was named after someone deceased or after a killed enemy, right? So like a so, child okay, was, wait, could you, let me explain it. And okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So a child was sometimes given a name, like after it was already 10 years old, because they needed oh, wow. time. Okay. Like the village had to go like kill a guy <laughs> from a, like an enemy <laughs> village nearby. And they're like, okay, okay. We killed this guy. Now we have your name. Sorry that you're already 15 oh. or whatever. So oh, I no. guess up until that point, they're like you. Or they had a nickname. <laughs> hey, like, get over here, stinky. Just <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> just like, what just they call snapping. Them? Just snapping at kids. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to learn the name of the man they killed and then bring the skull to their village. And that's the only way they could get the name of that person. Right. So they killed him, brought the skull over, and they're like, here's his head. Now you can have his name. And there was this whole other thing that I read about. Sometimes they would sit with the head like between their legs for a long time to try to get the powers into their manhood so they could have all the powers to make all the babies. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, I guess a... it's really interesting, right? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So cool. I guess, yeah. I don't know. They say that over time as the missionaries were there and kind of like spread word. Ruined about everything? People, I don't know what happened, but maybe they don't practice it as much anymore, probably because the missionaries were like, no, bad. Right. Don't kill people and mm-hmm. take their head. You're not supposed to do that. 
but you know, whatever. Listen, but if everybody also... accepts it, you know, like that's the thing too, is like, it just makes me think about how there are things in, in any kind of like, let's say you work in nonprofit or in the government or whatever. There are ideas that people have when they come from a continent and they try to um, overlay those ideas into like where we are, like an island setting and mm-hmm. they never work out right. They're not the same because it's just a different situation ecologically. I mean, not even just so many other things in in addition to just like ecology. But um, I don't know, just I don't like that when other people's laws are kind of placed on top of something that they shouldn't be. But that's on top. That's that's how colonizing works. Right. They they have that little like transparency sheet. Right. It's like (laughs) this beautiful (laughs) island culture. And then they have like a transparency sheet like, oh, this is how it should look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Also, let me just say that the practice of um, naming kids based on like the death of another person, like that kind of idea of, I guess, like getting the name from a dead person kind mm-hmm. of reminds me of confirmation as a Catholic. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. Kind <laughs> it of, has right? that same kind of, I mean, you, yeah, you get a name. You study you that person. Kill, you don't have to go kill your saint. I mean, you don't have to, to kill them. Yeah, you don't have to dead. kill them, but I'm just saying. They're already dead, but well, still similar. We're going to go back to this in a minute, but for now, we're going to have a little nature time, yeah, yeah. Megan. We need to have just nature a little time. nature moment. So I'm going to talk about some mammals from the area. Well, two in particular, because they're so stinking cute. Okay. So there's 244 mammal species in Papua New Guinea, of which there are seven that are critically endangered, 12 endangered and 40 are vulnerable and a lot of it has to do with all the things that we already know climate change (laughs) climate change um loss of habitat and overhunting so um i'm going to talk about two one is called the couscous have you heard of it it's a couscous and tree kangaroos have you heard of either of those oh i've heard of tree kangaroos but I mean, I'm trying not to think of the grain couscous. So I think that's how you're you talking say about it. an animal. I didn't look it up. Should we? Yeah, should I look no. It up? I don't, can't use my phone because I'm talking to you on it. But I, I think it's called a couscous. So the one I'm going to talk about is called the Admiralty couscous. It's a marsupial. It's nocturnal Perfect. and it's cat-sized and it's found in heavily forested tropical island of Manus. It's kind of found all over in Papua New Guinea, but in this particular area. Um, they're f- super cute and furry and they have like big cat-like eyes and little tiny ears, I... long tails. Yes. They're super cute. Just look it up right now, please. Um, and it's really unusual because the males and the females have, they have different pelt colors. So the males have mostly white with these brown or black, like they say splodges, like a soccer ball. Whereas the females oh. have, they're more like tan to black and they have um, a white underbelly and then they have a pouch on their tummy. Um, they're a very important game species for indigenous people um, because a lot of people there, there's not a lot of food actually. I mean, because there's not right. there's not livestock, thank goodness, to rely on. But mm-hmm. so they eat a lot of, you know, plants mostly. So this is right. a very big part of their food. Um, and they also went back and they say that archaeological evidence show that they were part of the diet for the Manus Islanders for at least 11,000 years, which is crazy. Wow. But now, so, and this is kind of similar in a lot of places, 
that there's always been a way that people manage their resources traditionally, right? They would like have managed Mm -hmm. hunts or they would manage like maybe where they would hunt and what times of year. But over time, people tend to lose these practices and that's really had a a bad effect. So they're they're getting overhunted because these harvests or huntings aren't being managed like they used to be before. So since 2010, there's a group there, the Wildlife Conservation Society of Papua New Guinea. They've been conducting research on a lot of these mammals that have never been studied or they're, you know, they say understudied, but a lot of them have never been studied. And so they're showing that the population of this group of couscous, that it actually has really high population growth rates and it should be able to keep up with some Mm. level of hunting. But because of the, you know, they've lost that traditional management and also because of the the loss of habitat. So a lot of the the villagers, instead of it being like a forest, they're starting to like cut back forests and grow, like cultivate, like do agricultural practices. And that's really having a bad effect. There's also this black spotted couscous. And I guess this is one of the largest ones. Um, There's another one called a bear couscous, which I'm like, it's just, they're so cute. Please look them up. And they're really colorful, oh, yeah. and but they also get hunted for their pelts because they like to wear them. Right, they're, right. They're pretty, and so these and uh, so the black spotted couscous is critically endangered. Oh man, sorry, it's like to be a yeah, bummer, I definitely but really cute. I know. I, I'm definitely in support of like a subsistence style of hunting. I mean, we talk about that all the time, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's sad. Oh. Well, well then I there's... think too, while you're saying changes in agriculture, that's a that's a big thing. That's mm-hmm. so much land is taken up by a monoculture. Kind well, of there's also a lot of people um, from other areas uh, moving into Papua New Guinea. So they're starting to, um, right. the population is increasing. So it's not only the indigenous groups that are hunting them, there's the other people coming in and hunting them. So the other one I want to talk about because it's super cute is the tree kangaroo. This one in particular is the Goodfellows tree kangaroo. And I'm not going to... Dendrolagus Goodfellow. That's not bad. Dendrolagus Goodfellow. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. So that makes sense. I can do that It's a tree kangaroo. So apparently it's... (laughs) It's a a good fella. It's it's a good fella. It's one of the most (laughs) iconic endangered species for Papua New Guinea. And it belongs to the... Macropod family. So macropod podidae. <laughs> macropodidae. So same with kangaroos. So and all of these. Like they carry the young in their pouch, um, like other marsupials. So this was one of the most widespread tree kangaroos that was found across the uh, mid and lower regions of the mountainous central, like central area of Papua New Guinea. And it extended from the Indonesian border mm-hmm. to the Milne Bay province. I guess if you know Papua New Guinea, you just need to look on a map. It'll show you. But Definitely um, there's going to be a map. So Go go see a map. Um, they're really easy to see or, you know, identify because they have dark ears. And they're really, they're so, you just want to squeeze them. They're so like <laughs> fuzzy, cute, like squishy, like kind of chubby. Ugh, oh, seriously. I just like, so I watched this this video, (laughs) I watched this video and it was this lady, she was this, I think American lady, and she was with this group of people like hunters, right? 
that knew how to get him. And so mm-hmm. he, they figured out if you start climbing the tree and really tall trees, they'll just like jump down. And you, it's kind of scary because she's like, you always think they're going to hurt themselves, but oh, this geez. is what they do. And they would jump down and then they would capture yeah. it. And they put these little um, mm. cameras on them so they could see what they're doing. And she was like so excited. It was kind of cute to see how, I mean, as a biologist, oh, you've, you've, you felt it. So these tree kangaroos, they have dark ears. They have this really nice, they say burgundy pelt with these golden stripes that run oh. from either side of its hind end. And um, like I said, this, this, so this lady had put these collars on them the, with video cameras on it so she could follow exactly what they were doing. And it was pretty cool. It was like a little short video from National Geographic. Go check it out. So unfortunately, a lot of the forest type that they're found in is being cleared again for uh, subsistence gardens, unfortunately. Um, And so the habitat's being eaten away. Mm -hmm. And I was reading in some cases that they're down to like 50 or less in the wild. So they're really, this is like a very, very critical species. Go for it. That was great. I love that nature moment. They're so cute. They're super cute. That kind of makes me think of like a, that's like a quokka moment. One of our earlier episodes. It was like I had a quokka moment when I I looked at the pictures of them. I was like, (laughs) meh. Um, So eight years later, after Michael had disappeared, there was this journalist called Mm -hmm. Milt Macklin. He went to New Guinea to investigate the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. And he concluded, and this there's a documentary about this, but he concluded that he was murdered to avenge the death. There was a few leaders from one of the coastal villages in that area I mentioned where they found that floating um, the water can. can? Uh, yeah, where they found the can. floating water yeah, can. Yeah. So it was near that Otsjenep. And, and they say that um, in that coastal village, there had been... Um, a couple of people of the or a couple of leaders that had been killed by the Dutch patrol in 1958, which was only a couple of years prior, because I think Before, he was right. he was missing in 1961. So, so the question was was were the head headhunters of Ostjenep still like mad about this at the Dutch authorities, or just kind of mad at white people in general? And so, if they mm-hmm. if they saw him, maybe they were like. Either whether they knew him or didn't know who he was, they were just kind of taking some sort of revenge. Um, and there was this other, this guy, Dr. Ari Kemper, and he lived in New Guinea for like 11 years. And he said, this was his point of view, and this is a quote. He said, I think he was murdered by Asmat people. It may have been for his head. He may have well been eaten. A man alone without arms, and I mean guns. I don't know why I was like, right, when I yes. read that, I was all like, good I God, also, he took just his when you arms. Said it, I also pictured <laughs> someone with just like <laughs> no arms. I love that. Yes, I get it. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I know. Because I was like, oh my God. I'm like, he swam, <laughs> he swam his arms off. That's what, the, I, like, that's where my oh, brain the was going. crocodiles got it? What happened? So anyway, oh, a man yeah. alone without arms roaming around the coast, that's risky. But uh, but do you know why the government officials say that he perished at sea? Because they don't want the world to think that the Netherlands do not have proper control over their colony. Officially, there is no headhunting, no cannibalism, or, tri- or tribal warfare. The murder of the son of a well-known millionaire would not look good in the United Nations, would it now? But six machetes? That's a fortune. For that price, the Asmats can buy two wives. 
You know, for an asthmat warrior, a head is a head. They probably didn't even realize that this particular white guy who was half naked was a supplier of those machetes in the first place. Dude. Yeah. How are they going to know? He doesn't right? speak the language. That, yeah. They're they're just like this rando dude. Right. What, right, right. This is going to buy us a lot. Yeah, absolutely. There was also um, a Dutch priest named Jan Smit. Um, who became, he was a missionary in New Guinea um, since 1959, so a couple of years before he was there. Um, and he knew Michael, and he yeah. claimed that he saw a warrior walking around with Michael's boxers on. Because remember, he was wearing boxers when he was swimming. And also, according to the same guy who actually, this priest was later shot by an Indonesian officer. Um, they just threw that in there. But anyway, the, so according to him, <laughs> the murder was committed by... Papuan warriors from that same village. And he had heard stories that one of the warriors shot the American with an arrow while he was still in the water. And based on what he had heard from these stories, Father Smith gave the following account of the murder. So here's another person's account of what they heard. And this is a quote. Yeah. Other warriors dragged the wounded American out of the water after which they finished him off. They scalped him alive, cooked and ate other some other uh, body parts and then buried the remainder the scenario is mainly based on statements made by the leader of the Ostinip warriors, known as Ajik of Ajim. Um, and sometime after the search of for Rockefeller, Ajik started spreading the story that he had killed an important, and this is another quote, an important witch doctor, a white man that he headhunted him and that he had taken on his magical powers. At the same time, two other warriors were told a similar tale they also claimed to be responsible for his murder as a result, which they now owned Rockefeller's magic. As proof of this, Finn, one of the two warriors, showed Rockefeller's glasses to his audience. End quote. Oh. Yes. I mean, so, you could anyway. go either way. You could totally believe that for sure. Or you could be like, oh, these guys are making it up to get clout. Like, yeah, they just, totally. It, it could go either way. Because mm -hmm. everybody knew about and, it, right? I mean, it's not like a, something people yeah. didn't know about. Everybody knew. So um, a little bit about Rene. He went back to the Netherlands. He's like, I, I'm good. I'm just going to just gonna go back to the Netherlands. <laughs> He's like, deuces. <laughs> yeah. And he became the curator of a museum there, this ethnographic museum. Um, it's now known as their, there as the World Museum. And he managed the collection. Um, and can you continue to buy interesting artifacts on his trips abroad? So anyway, he just kind of, he went back. So just, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that in that he was okay, but yeah. he peaced out. This is where things kind of got a little more interesting later. So he went missing in 1961, you know, about a decade after that, there was more speculation and stories. So, but in 2014, there was um, a reporter with National Geographic named Carl Hoffman he went back and tried to reopen this case and investigate it. And he oh. ended up, after his trip out there, he ended up writing a book called Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. So that's the name of the book. I actually listened to almost all of it. I almost got finished, but I didn't have time to finish before we had this. But um, so yeah, he went back and he found some more evidence or went looking for evidence that these Osmat um, warriors had killed Michael. So he met wow. up with these two Dutch missionaries that were on island um, 
and they'd been living with Asmat people for a long time, spoke the language. And they told local authorities that they had heard from the Asmat that some of them had killed Michael Rockefeller. So he also found out that there was this police officer. This is, okay, sorry. So this, that would have been right after it happened. So I guess what he kind of heard was there was all this evidence right after it happened, but everything kind of got pushed under the rug. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, and it totally makes sense what they were saying was that like the the Dutch authorities were like, well, we don't, we don't want that kind of publicity. We don't want people to think International that that's incident. what's happening over here, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So apparently one of the police officers that went over to investigate this the following year after Michael went missing, um, he came to the same conclusion. He said that they even showed him the skull that they said was Michael Rockefeller's. They're like, oh yeah, here's the skull right here. So all of these things were... Or they say buried in classified files, and no one looked into it any further. The Rockefellers were told that there was nothing to the rumors, and that their son that there was nothing to the rumors that their son had been killed by natives. Done deal. Mm. Um, so why suppress it? Because and by 1962, they say the Dutch had already lost half the island to the new state of Indonesia, and they feared that if it were believed that they couldn't control their, I'm using air quotes, native population that they would you right, know, get yeah. kicked out. They were scared. Man, right? that that really turns my stomach, that phrase. They're, I know. Their native population. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. not cool. So, not cool, you guys. So here we go. Carl Hoffman. So he, when he went back to look at these 50-year-old claims that, you know, of what had happened, he traveled all the way to that same village of Ostenep. And he went there and he was, Mm. they say he was posing as a journalist, documenting the culture of the people um, and that his interpreter overheard a man telling another member of the tribe not to discuss the American tourist who had died there. (laughs) It's like, they're like, don't tell him about that one guy. Okay. It's like, but his interpreter was like, hey, they just said to not tell you about this one guy. He's like, that's the only reason I'm here is to hear about that. So. (laughs) <laughs> so apparently, yeah, he kept like, okay, no, it's fine. Just tell me what's, you know. So he urged them to tell him what happened. And he said what he heard is that it was common knowledge on the island of the Atma people um, that they had killed and ate a white man and that they didn't want anybody to know because they didn't want to get in trouble, basically. Um, he had also learned that the killing was actually what they had suspected in the beginning, that it was kind of a revenge thing, um, that in 1957, Mm. just three years, that was three years before he first went to the island, there was a massacre between the two tribes. And, like, the two tribes were fighting, and they each killed, like, dozens of each other's men, which I guess happened all the time. But what the problem was is that the Dutch government, they had just only, you know, recently taken over, colonized the area. And so they were mm-hmm. like, hey, you guys can't fight. So they went out with guns and they were trying to like get them to stop. But it says there were a series of cultural misunderstandings that resulted in the Dutch mm-hmm. opening fire on the Odstinate people. No. Oh, no. So this was their first <sighs> encounter with firearms. And they saw four of their like war leaders shot and killed. Jesus. Not cool. So the tribesmen, they say, you know, that later when the tribesmen found Michael, 
Because they say, what they said is that he was like swimming, like backstroking towards the shore. So it seems like he made it there. He made it to the shore. And when they saw him, that they were like, should we do it? Should we do it? Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess according to this Dutch missionary who first heard the story, they at first thought that Michael was a crocodile. But as he got closer, they saw he was a Tuan or a white man, just like the Dutch colonizers. And just it was just kind of like wrong place, wrong time for Michael because they were also uh, warriors. And they were also the, they were warriors and the sons of those other people, the warriors who had been killed by the Dutch. Who died. Oh. Yeah. So they were just pissed. And they'd been carrying that around with them for a while. So I guess one of them said, one of the men reportedly said, people of Ashnaf, you've always been talking about headhunting Tuans, the white people. Well, here's your chance. And they Mm -hmm. hesitated mostly because they were scared, but eventually they speared and killed him. Then they cut off his head and cleaved his wow. skull to eat out to eat his brain. They cooked and ate the rest of his flesh. His thigh bones were turned into daggers, and his tibias were made uh, into points for fishing spears. His blood was drained, and the tribesmen drenched themselves in it while they performed ritual dance dances and sex acts. This is which was part. Well, of the that's culture. intense. Yeah, I mean, you would think though, then that you would be able to find some kind of artifact with his like uh DNA, DNA. In it. you know like if they use a thigh bone yeah mm-hmm. thigh bone to make a knife then there's got to be some uh, uh and i mean unless they scraped it. out the well right. i think they were hiding it all this time and so they say um going along with their beliefs that this whole thing happened because they they believed they were restoring balance to the world they, you know, the tribe right. of the white men had killed four of them and now they had taken retribution. And so by consuming right. the body of Michael Rockefeller, they could absorb the energy and power that had been taken from them. So everything oh, goes wow. back into balance. I guess after this happened, they regretted it pretty quickly because there were like, imagine for these people, like they did this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's like police and planes and helicopters and ships. There's this huge like search and rescue operation happening and they were really scared. So a lot of them had never even seen a plane or a helicopter before. Oh man. Yeah, that's got to also feel like a little bit, I don't know, that the Dutch had come in and opened fire on their, these people who are very strong in their community and then nothing happened. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. nothing Mm -hmm. happened after that. Nobody in the world said anything or cared and then this one white guy you know wrong place wrong time whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. he gets you know and then all of a sudden it's like the whole world is there trying to figure out what happened yeah and there's like a little there's like a level of injustice that's just kind of that's rough yeah that's not okay right and so they also say like right I mean, after it happened there was like a bad breakout yeah. of cholera in the area and they oh God. and they thought that that was also some sort of sign as a revenge for the murder. Uh, so they were like, wow, like we, omen, really, but maybe, we really effed up here. But but maybe it's like from something, like having all those people around. Or cholera is a waterborne disease, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> so oh, man. apparently when he was there interviewing people, Carl Hoffman, he would, there were people mm-hmm. that were coming forward and they were like, yeah, this person and that person. But he said that no one that actually took part in it came forward, even though the old, they believe some of the old guys were, the, you know, they were still alive or still around. 
it was always just like something yeah. uh, people were telling it as a story that they had just heard because nobody wants to, you know, they're scared. Admit to like, it. What's going to happen yeah. to them? Are yeah. they going to get shot? Well, you know, are they going to go right. to jail? Like what's going to happen? So they said that. I um, imagine that there's mm-hmm. like a house in the village where they have like a, like uh, on the wall when there aren't any when there's no visitors in the village it's just like mm-hmm. all those tools right made from his bones just like up on the wall and they're like this these are our prized possessions and then some visitor comes and they like press a button and it like flips around like one of those like <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's just books <laughs> like fake imagine? books yeah yeah uh, that's what i imagine that would be amazing <laughs> So I guess there was one day when he was in the village and it's not long before he left and went back to the U.S. that he saw this man miming, uh, killing as part. He was like telling a story and he was like telling the story to another man. And they um, were, it's like, he was like pretending to spear somebody um, and shoot an arrow and like chop off the head. It's like this, you know, he could tell like this is the story he was telling. (laughs) And he could hear words that were like relating to murder. And so he <laughs> chopping up the head oh, God. spear, spear chop. And so <laughs> he started to like film it because he was like, I want to get this. But the story was over. But I guess he did catch a bit of it on film and it was translated. And this is a quote. So I'll just read what it says. It said, Don't you tell the story to any other man or any other village because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it and you must keep it for us. I hope. I hope this is for you and only for you. Don't talk to anyone forever, to other people or another village. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because this story is only for you. It's kind of repetitive here. If you Tell it to them. You'll die. I'm afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead if you tell the story. You keep this story in your house to yourself. I hope forever, forever. It's no joke right there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. In other words, don't Hear me tell out. anyone. What if, <laughs> what if he had found like this amazing tree in the forest? Okay. Mm-hmm. And like no one else had found it. And he was like, Okay, this is how you get up the tree, right? You use your spear in the side to climb up the tree. Then you get the fruit. And then he's like doing the motion of like cutting the fruit off the tree. This is how you get a tree kangaroo. And he's like, this is the most special special fruit. And then the head. And then you eat it. Yeah. And and then they just caught the end of it where he's like, don't tell anyone about this tree. This is my secret harvesting spot. Everybody in your village will die if you tell them. Right. But, you know, in, I'm just in saying context is everything. Yeah. So context. Yeah. The book is super interesting. I highly recommend it. Anybody who wants to yeah. read it. It's, yeah. So go check it out. Um, I also read this short article that was from 2014. So the same time this book came out, it was from the Daily Mail. And it, they had interviewed Michael's twin sister, Mary, because remember, she went out and tried to help find him. Oh. So she ended up becoming a yeah. psychologist yeah. in New York. Um, and she says that she still remembers her father bringing the family the news. And she said, I knew deep down for one terrible moment that Michael was gone before they flew. And that's before they flew to New Guinea that night. She says, we were incredibly moved by the amount of mm-hmm. people who came out over this vast expanse of jungle from their small villages and went to search for him. 
The prevailing thought was that he had drowned in a seaplane over the dense jungle or coastline. I realized how unbelievably difficult it was to make it to shore. And she said after 10 days, the family called off to search and they returned home. She said she went and hugged her mother and her mother told her to never cry. She saw this as part of her responsibility as a Rockefeller. So she says she buried her emotions and she struggled. Seriously, that's why she became a psychologist. She said, nobody knows what happened to Michael, and that leaves our family in a terrible place of not knowing. I wanted him to be alive so much that sometimes I thought I saw him in a crowd. And she's she's spent like 30 years in therapy over this. And she said, she said um, she found her work with grieving twins helped her. So she ended up working with grieving twins as part of her specific therapy work. Um, yeah, said, I guess I wanted to know, too, like, did she have, like, a uh, twin twinkling? You know what I mean? Like, how twins say that they can, like, feel things sometimes? I don't or know. I always hear that's more whatever. with identical twins, but I don't know. Could be fraternal twins feel it, too. Right. You know? Right. But um, sure. she said she remembers him happily and regularly visits all of the art that he collected because it's still on show at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, Today, he feels so present, she said. He left me his incredible curiosity and his ability to embrace life. He is bigger than his death. My family and I hold him in our hearts, and we are so proud of his legacy. And so she ended up publishing a book called When Grief Calls Forth, The Healing, A Memoir of Losing a Twin. And that was in 2014. That sounds super sad. So she said that she still believes that he drowned. She doesn't believe any of the other stuff. She's like, he drowned. I'm, I'm okay with that. She's like, the people there were too nice. Yeah. They wouldn't have done that. But I mean, most of the people are pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. Mostly. Mostly nice. Um, mostly. Yeah. On, so the, on the surface. There's been a lot of books and documentaries. And there was even this um, shoot. You know, I forgot to write it down. Uh, I want to look it up. But there was a a movie. And it was called like Savage Jungle or something jungle. Oh, shoot. I might have to look it up later. But anyway, it was like 2007 and it was about these people that went out to try to figure out. It's like a horror movie, right? And they went out to try to figure out what happened. Oh. And um, and then, you know, like all oh, kinds no. of death and gross stuff ensues. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what it's called, though. Gosh. Anyway. Someone's yelling it. Just like uh, the other thing we asked people to tell us about last week. And then I already forgot it. Cravat. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So I do have an organization to support because we're getting back to our our fuzzy cutie mammals that that are um, yeah. losing their habitat. So I mentioned it earlier, the Wildlife Society uh, or Wildlife Conservation Society of Papua New Guinea, and it's png.wcs.org, and you can donate. And it's WCS is the longest established international conservation organization operating in Papua New Guinea and has been undertaking conservation work in the country since the 1970s. Today, WCS Papua New Guinea program employs more than 60 staff based at four offices around the country, and they work with local communities on a wide range of conservation issues in a variety of locations spanning from coral reefs to the mountain rainforests. Their vision is, and there's this whole thing that's in their language. I'm not going to even try to say, but they say it translates to empowered people with healthy forests and seas. The vision fits with their um, global vision 
which is um, envisions a world where wildlife thrives in healthy lands and seas valued by societies that embrace and benefit from the diversity and integrity of life on earth. Very nice. Mm, there you go. That's very nice. Yeah. They have a really cool webpage. Webpage. Do you say that anymore? Webs. It's like not a page. They have a <laughs> website. I'm old. They have a very cool website. You should go check it out and donate because it's super cool. I guess as long as you don't call someone's TikTok page a webpage, you're okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Their TikTok I'm webpage. Sorry. Um, so, Megan. That was a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very interesting there. story. Listen. I have so many thoughts, right? Because, okay, especially about collecting. I I think early, like our second episode, we talked about, even when you talked to our very first episode, talking about Julianne Cope and like when scientists go places and collect things and take them back. Her parents were different. You know, they had a center there and it really like fed back to the local community. And that was great. Mm-hmm. But right. I, I don't know. I just think about these like <laughs> swashbuckling. I don't think, I don't know what the word is, but these like young white American men who go to other countries to collect stuff to bring back from museums. And Mm -hmm. even in like, okay, so let me, let me just preface this with I and women and women. And I had, I had a roommate at one point who um, I'm trying to remember exactly what her major was. And I cannot remember, but she was talking to me a lot about how there are museums out there that did not ethically collect their collections, you know, it's like from either wartime or colonization right. or whatever. It was just kind of like, oh, we're going here, we're taking this stuff and we're bringing it back to show the people about these weird things that are going on in these other places. Mm-hmm. And like how there's a movement to try to, for people to reclaim their artifacts and things like that. Oh, yeah. So I, I was like thinking about, about that this. through this whole story. Yeah. Yeah. How it's like, so I, I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about how he should have just stayed on that boat. So, as a person who, if like we were going to go to PNG and like didn't want to get cannibalized or headhunted or whatever, mm-hmm. just stay on the boat, man. Just, just stay on the boat. <laughs> just stay with your guide. Stay in your, stay in your lane. Okay. That's your lane. Like where you are. This is what's acceptable. This is what's not acceptable. Stay in your acceptable mm-hmm. lane. Mm-hmm. It's all good. You'd have been fine. Um, but I feel like the thing for our emergency preparedness kit today that I yes. think that we should do, we should keep, mm-hmm. we should have, uh, is really for the local tribe. I mean, I love the idea of a hide-a-wall, a hide-a-wall for some, <laughs> like, <laughs> local artifacts. <laughs> a little, I mean, what are those walls called? They're just, like, turny, aroundy hide-a-walls? I don't know. They're the rotating walls. There we go. A rotating, rotating wall, wall. That's it. That you can hide. Yes. Yeah, you can hide your contraband behind, you know. Right. On one side is the contraband, on one side is your collection of novels or something. <laughs> From your the skulls of enemies that you don't want yeah. anybody to find. Yeah. yeah. A rotating hide wall for your skulls for the skulls of your enemies. Exactly. Yes. I think so. <laughs> your contraband. Or just for your artifacts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we could we could, you know, sure. We can take it down a notch. Because, you know, it could work for a lot <laughs> yeah. of different, it could work for a lot of different communities that don't, aren't headhunters. Yeah. And I will say it, it is very sad for him that, that he died, even if like the tales of him being killed and cannibalized and all of that, if, if that's not true, if he just drowned, that's sad. You know, it, being in a boat wreck and not really wanting to stay there and feeling you know, like you could help by doing I something else. Him, I get yeah, it. He, he really seemed like genuinely he was 
a really good person. You know, he really, he wanted to collect these things, but I mean, I think he, he had, his heart was in the right place. I think he really Dif- liked the people. Yeah. He really loved being there. He was trying to learn as much as he could. So when he did get the artifacts that he mm-hmm. gave it the proper story, I guess. And so I, I feel like right. he, he cared a lot and his heart was in the right place. And it is really tragic what happened yeah. to him. But I guess, you know, these are lessons not only for us, but also, you know, for the people there. I feel like that's gone down mm-hmm. in their history as a story that no one's infamous. supposed to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it seems like everybody kind of knows. <laughs> yeah. And it definitely came through the story that he was not there for the wrong reasons. Like he was there to learn more and bring back mm-hmm. that information. He definitely, I agree. He would have made a good Peace Corps for sure. Yeah. Um, just like wanting to learn and figure things out. And that's really cool and commendable. Just I agree, like wrong place, wrong time or a horrible accident. You know, if he drowned, that's awful. Maybe a misjudgment of the length that he was going to have to swim. Also, when you said five miles, I was like, I can't even imagine walking five miles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also, (laughs) I mean, wrong place, wrong time. But also he wasn't any part of that turmoil that had happened several years. Yeah. You know, so it's just like, yeah, yeah, definitely. You just never know what's going on. It was unfortunate for him. Yeah. So mm-hmm. emergency preparedness wise, I'd want to protect the the local population a little bit more. And their artifacts. And their, you know, yeah. artifacts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank thanks. you so much for that story, Jen. That was great. Yeah. yeah we hope you. you guys enjoyed it. We hope you did. And uh, hopefully this all sounds good in the end because we have no idea what we're doing <laughs> right now. <laughs> if it does, thanks, it's Jonathan. a thousand percent Jonathan. <laughs> all, all right. right. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by following us on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts, or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com, where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on our website or to our email. You're going to die out there at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.